There are multiple ways to keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast. Through our Instagram handle, the Wolf Connection Pod, and for comments and questions, send us an email to podcast at wolfconnection.org with your comments, questions, and guest ideas for Stephen and myself. You may hear your question answered on an upcoming podcast. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. Let's talk about some more. So off the top, I'm going to apologize for my voice. I'm just getting over a, a slight cold. So please bear with me. Those of you out there who listen to our podcast on the regular. Um, and Stephen and I are joined by two awesome individuals who are celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Mexican Grey Wolf being released back in the wild. Two awesome organizations. Uh, we have Emily Wren, who is the executive director for Grand Canyon Wolf Recovery Project, and Aaron Hunt, who is the managing director of Lobos of the Southwest. Thank you both for being with us and talking about this incredible anniversary and this awesome reintroduction that's uh, ongoing. How are you both doing today? Good. Yeah. Thank you for having us. It's exciting to be here. Yeah, we're really excited. Just really grateful for the opportunity to talk with you and talk with your listeners. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you both. And uh, I appreciate, I think it was Emily. I think Emily reached out to me first and told us about this awesome thing. I didn't realize that it was 25 years from the initial reintroduction. Um, and I know there was a phenomenal growth in the population this year. Things have been going better, I think, than expected, at least for for this year for for the population themselves. But we want to give everybody out there just a chance to understand who you are, when you, how you guys got started. So I'll start with Emily because we, we were talking right before we, we started recording. You've been with the organization since 2009. You've gone through a bunch of different role changes and things like that, as most of us do. Just give everybody a background on yourself, how you got into Grand Canyon Wolf Recovery Project and you know what it's meant to you to be a part of this organization. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania um, in a small town. Um, my grandfather was a farmer and a hunter. So I actually credit him for instilling a love of wildlife um, and animals in me from a very young age. I always had that. Um, and then eventually um, in high school, I actually applied for a boarding school <laughs> in Vermont to my parents' chagrin. I got in. Um, and it was a boarding school actually on an organic farm. So it was a working farm school. Um, and I thought that's what I would do. I thought I would grow up and be a sheep farmer um, and an artist. <laughs> um, and then I went off to college, you know, very roundabout um, turn of events. I took an Amtrak to Arizona um, to visit a friend. And I just literally came here on a train and never got back on the train. Um, so that's how I ended up here. I ended up transferring college to Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, and I switched to wildlife biology. So um, then I started to get a lot more involved in wildlife issues in the Southwest. I always had a, a particular interest in keystone species. Um, wolves, and I've done a lot of work with prairie dogs as well. Um, so I actually did my master's research working with Gunnison's prairie dogs here in northern Arizona. And then when the, this 
a job opportunity opened up with the Grand Canyon Wolf Recovery Project. Um, I knew a person that had been working with the organization and she encouraged me to apply. So that was in 2009. Um, and I've been with the organization ever since. And what's just described the mission too about what Grand Canyon Wolf Recovery Project is? I know it's a, a lot of it's about education, uh, some of the introduction, but just tell everybody just sort of the background and the backbone of what, what they do and, and what their mission is. Yeah. So we're a small nonprofit based in Flagstaff, Arizona. Our mission is dedicated to bringing back wolves and restoring the ecological health of the Grand Canyon region. So in that mission, we're not actually specific to Mexican wolves, but we've always had a, a strong focus on the Mexican gray wolf uh, because the science has really shown there's strong feasibility, um, good habitat in this region, um, and it's really kind of a critical um, core population area for the endangered Mexican gray wolf. Um, but that being said, we've also had a northern gray wolf that's actually dispersed to the north rim of the Grand Canyon. So there is potential um, for both northern gray wolves and the Mexican gray wolf in our region. And, and we have um, really like two main goals for our organization. Um, one is to promote the policies to allow wolves to recolonize this region um, and re-inhabit this area. And then um, also our second goal is really focused on building a strong constituency of support throughout the region. Because ultimately, obviously, we all know that public support and respect and understanding for wolves is vital to their long-term success. So, you know, I'm grateful for all of our founders who got together Back in 2003, is actually 20 years ago, is when um, groups of individuals um, in this region that included scientists, it included some park rangers from Grand Canyon, um, scientists, um, educators, lawyers, um, kind of all recognized that this Grand Canyon region provided some of the last best suitable habitat for wolves in the country. And, and so they saw the um, need to really start building the public support from the get-go, um, which is what I think is an advantage to some other places in the country that that didn't have that kind of, um, you know, laying the, the groundwork um, in the area for um, building public support from an early phase before the wolves came back. I think this is our first time sort of focusing on the Grand Canyon area. So I'm curious, what does what does public perception look like in the Grand Canyon area? Yeah, it's actually um, quite good in the Grand Canyon region. We um, have done, there have been public surveys done over the years, which specifically asked um, Arizona, New Mexico voters, the question about reintroduction in the Grand Canyon region. And the survey results showed 81% public support. Um, so it's really strong. It's even stronger than just um, statewide results for wolf reintroduction in Arizona, New Mexico. Um, the Grand Canyon region also has a really strong um, basis of tourism um, that makes up our economy around Grand Canyon National Park. Um, so that's a positive for wolves. I mean, obviously, we don't 
we don't anticipate that wolves will live down in the Grand Canyon itself. Um, so it's a little bit of a misnomer in our name, but but they will live up on the rims around the Grand Canyon. And there are excellent um, high elevation forests um, that connect all the way from the South Rim to the White Mountains and the Gila National Forest in New Mexico. So that's all a contiguous corridor of Ponderosa Pine Forest. And then the North Rim has really beautiful high elevation forest um, that includes some of the the biggest um, you know, trophy deer herds in Arizona, um, lots of elk and deer in this area. And, and so the, you know, public perceptions are actually quite good in this area. That's good. That's actually, that's really good to hear. And that coalition, obviously, that started Grand Canyon Wolf Recovery Project is, is great that you have people from all different walks of life starting something like that and, and having that one singular focus to help this species, you know, repopulate these areas where obviously it was uh, meant to be from, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago. Aaron, I want to bring you in so that everybody can get to know you a little bit. So same for you. How did you get involved with Lobos of the Southwest? What was your upbringing? Where, how did you get to this point where you're, you're involved with, uh, Mexican gray wolves and wolves in general. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I guess my, my animal hero origin story starts at a pretty early age as well. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, uh, and my family was really great about just encouraging me and my interest in animals and nature, um, had a love for animals from a very, very young age. Uh, we had many, many, furry, feathered, and scaly, and slimy family members <laughs> that I got to take care of when I was growing up. Um, so I had a lot of experience there through just, just pets in our home. Uh, and we would also go out regularly into nature on hikes and nature walks. And so that, it gave me this exposure to being out in nature and appreciating nature and feeling like I was part of nature and instilling this sense of stewardship or responsibility in caring for animals and caring for nature. And also just an act of, of family and community where nature wasn't just something you could enjoy by yourself, but it was something you could enjoy with friends, with family, with community. Um, and it was about closeness to the natural world as well as closeness with each other. So I'm deeply grateful for that upbringing. <laughs> and I think that started me on my path um, for a love of ecology and interest in ecology, um, going through school, doing a lot of volunteer work in high school and college. And that's actually how I started my career in conservation. Um, I was a volunteer and then I started working with an organization called the California Wolf Center, um, worked there. Uh, They're one of the largest partners in the Mexican Wolf Species Survival Plan, which is the captive breeding program for Mexican gray wolves. So I worked there for about 14 years, um, working with the wolves in captivity and preparing them for a hopeful someday journey back into the wild where they belong. Um, I managed a coexistence fund uh, that was dedicated to making sure community members in the Southwest had the tools they need to coexist with wolves, reduce livestock conflict, um, and make sure that wolves have a chance and were welcomed uh, back into the landscapes where they belong. And I served on the management group for the Mexican Wolf SSP as well during that time. And then I started with Lobos of the Southwest actually as a volunteer as well. Uh, back in 2015, and then I joined the staff in 2020, 
uh, and have been in this kind of ad advocacy and outreach role ever since. Um, and it's really an honor and a privilege because now I, I don't work directly with the wolves uh, anymore, but I get to work with a lot of different amazing people and organizations um, in both amplifying the work that many organizations are doing, uh, but also doing some grassroots volunteer organizing and um, connecting members of the public, members of communities with opportunities to advocate for wolves. It's a really exciting thing to be involved in. Yeah, it seems like you both these organizations, you guys have similar mission statements that you're really talking about education, really getting communities involved. Erin, for you, have you worked with uh, Emily before? Have you guys sort of cross-pollinated? Was that something that that that's happened on the regular or was this partnership something that happened in recent years to, I, I guess, combine forces and really uh, hit the ground running with with more ammo as it would be to, to help educate and form? Yeah, I think I've known Emily at least since 2015, at least since I started participating in Lobos of the Southwest. But I, I have some memories of some connections before that from my time in the Species Survival Plan. Um, and yeah, I always enjoy working with Emily. Um, yeah, Emily is a very you know creative and inspiring and intelligent person. So truly an honor um, to know you and to work with you to save wolves. Um, and the landscapes where they belong. And yeah, I think that there there are is a lot of overlap and um, similarities in our approaches for the different organizations. Um, and I think that's uh, you know important that we're one organization alone or one individual alone can only do so much. But when we collaborate with each other, when we develop working relationships and partnerships and build bridges across divides, you know, that's when we're really starting to get a lot more done. So I think it's an exciting thing for me to get to be part of efforts that are all about relationship building and are all about collaboration. Yeah. It really makes sense because it's, that's how wolves obviously operate is that, you know, a lone wolf can only survive for so long until they find their pack. So it really seems that you, you both have certainly found your pack as it were. And the fact that you're helping each other out and, and promoting this is, is phenomenal. Emily, talk about, and I'll get to you, Aaron, too, about this. Just talk about what this 25th anniversary means for Mexican gray wolves. And and if you can, just, just talk about the significance of Lobo's Week and everything that was being promoted and what it meant for the community at large. I know there was a lot of indigenous help that was there. Um, there was a film that was done. Just really give everybody a sense of what the 25th anniversary means and, and Lobo's Week in and of itself and I'll, I'll get to you, Aaron, too, about how it worked for Lobos. Yeah, so I actually I can't remember when Lobo Week was actually started, um, but the Wolf Conservation Center came up with that um, campaign a number of years ago, um, celebrating the the first releases of Mexican wolves back into the wild, which took place on March 29th, 1998. Um, into the forests of eastern Arizona. Um, so that was the first year um, after wolves had almost been um, completely eradicated um, and were very close to extinction. Um, there were no wolves known left in the wild in Arizona and New Mexico um, or Mexico by the 1970s. Um, so then the captive breeding program start, started with just seven individual founders um, were all the wolves t 
today are descended from just those seven individuals. Um, but then eventually once the captive breeding program um, had enough wolves in captivity, they determined um, under the guidance of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, that it was time to start the reintroduction. Um, so as part of this anniversary this year for the 25th anniversary, there's been a number of webinars and events to celebrate um, 25 years of having wolves back in the wild in the Southwest, um, which is definitely cause for celebration. And then also um, celebrating the fact that the Mexican wolf population has now crossed 200 wolves for the first time ever in the wild um, since the reintroduction program began. So it's, you know, it's definitely taken a long time. It's been a slow road. There's still a long way to go um, towards recovery. Um, there's been a lot of ups and downs that we can get into um, more detail on that, but but we definitely wanted to celebrate this um, occasion and this anniversary with the public. So when they're, again, and this this was the benchmark I wanted to talk about too with both of you, is just how significant that 200 number is because many people see, I think, the reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone or in Idaho or in other different places, and they see the numbers in the hundreds and they go, okay, or, or in, the thou, you know, in the thousand range. And they go, okay, you know, wolves are somewhat established. And there's always been, I think with the Mexican gray wolf, this start, stop, you know, two step forwards, two steps forward, four steps backwards type instance where the captive breeding program works. They get a few wolves out in the wild and they're ultimately either shot or they, they don't survive or whatever the, the, the case may be. So for those that are out there, and I know they may say again, 200 small number, what does that ultimately mean that there was this huge spike this year in litters and survival rate and now the population moving forward? Does this mean we're going to be seeing they, they can creep up to 500, 1,000? Is that something that is relatively possible or is this um, just a, a a larger leap and, and a lot of smaller steps that have happened over the course of the, of the, the decades since reintroduction? Well, we know from last year um, there there was um, good pup survival, um, which was much higher than is typical. Um, pup survival rates are usually around fifty percent, and last year I believe it was sixty seven percent survival of the pups. So there were a lot of pups born, and then a lot of them ended up surviving till the end of the year. So that was a um, a big factor in increasing the population for the end of year count. Um, another factor was there was um, relatively low mortality in 2022. So there were only 12 documented uh, mortalities, which was a good bit lower than previous years. Um, so that was a positive trend for sure. Um, and, you know, the overall, the population objective for the Mexican wolf recovery plan is 320 wolves in the U.S. Um, and they need to reach that population objective um, over an average of eight years is 320 wolves. So the population objective is still far too low um, for the species overall to promote long-term 
viability throughout the Southwest. Um, that's only one core population area, not including um, suitable habitat north of Interstate 40 in the Grand Canyon region and also the Southern Rockies. Um, so there are a lot of problems with that population objective. And ultimately, we know, you know that, that that wasn't really based on the best available science for what Mexican wolves need to be recovered. You know, it was really political compromises with what the states would tolerate. So, you know, yes, we would love to see the population get to 500 to, you know, at least 750 is what most scientists have called for. Um, but, you know, we could probably certainly um, have the capacity for over a thousand wolves throughout the Southwest. I mean, we have huge states, um, large areas of public land throughout the Southwest. Um, so yeah, the, the population objective is still far too low, but of course, every day that we get closer um, to increasing the numbers is good. And, and the more the population grows, the more we're gonna see wolves starting to disperse out into new areas of habitat. What is the current range of, of or at least the, the current known range of Mexican gray wolves? I mean, wh where could you be right now hiking and you, you, you see a, a large wild canine? Where could you be confident that what you're looking at is a Mexican gray wolf? It's the core reintroduction area right now is primarily the Apache National Forest in Arizona and the Gila National Forest in New Mexico. Um, they are expanding um, to some other areas of national forest outside um, further to the east in New Mexico. Um, they're starting to expand further to the west in Arizona. Um, there are also wolves that live on the White Mountain Apache tribal lands, and they're a cooperating partner in the reintroduction program as well. Um, so that's kind of the core area. Um, we do know there's been at least... Um, 10 wolves, Mexican wolves that have dispersed into Northern Arizona around the Flagstaff area. Um, so that is becoming, you know, it's still very rare, but it's becoming uh, more and more likely that that, that could be um, a possible place for sightings in the future. Wow. Uh, Aaron, I, I want to uh, talk to you about this too, about the public perception. Obviously, Emily said that the, obviously the numbers are high. People love this, uh, about reintroduction, about wolves being on the landscape and, and that there is opportunity for the population to grow. What was it, or what is it like hitting this silver anniversary, this 25th anniversary, and then seeing this jump in population? Did it garner more interest from the public where people, calling you guys, wanting to know more? How can they get involved? What was it really like to see this jump in population and how the public reacted to this in in terms of their perception of the Mexican gray wolf? Yeah, great question. I think anytime we have wolves out in the news, it does garner a lot of attention. Um, wolves are a controversial species, so that's both positive and negative attention. But you know, we've had a lot of exciting policy things going on in the Southwest um, and including uh, Colorado, uh, which hopefully we'll get to talk about a little later. Um, but each time we have, you know, things in the news or policy developments or public comment periods, we definitely got a lot of interest and support and participation in that. 
um, our anniversary events. You know, we did virtual events, we did in-person events in multiple cities throughout the Southwest. And it was really exciting to, you know, see people coming out in various ways, <laughs> both in person and digitally, um, to support wolves and to learn more about what they can do to get involved um, to recover. And I think if it's okay, I'd like to circle back just to just to what that number means. What does it mean to reach 241 wolves? Um, it is definitely something to celebrate. But you know, one of the things we like to remind people about is that it's not just about the numbers. Um, it's also about uh, tolerance on the landscape. Where are wolves welcomed? Where are they allowed to roam? Where are they encouraged to thrive in the wild places where they belong? Um, it's about their genetics. Um, the population growth is really encouraging, and we definitely want to celebrate that, but we also have to recognize that wild Mexican gray wolves are still considered inbred, uh, which is going to pose challenges for their long-term survival and conservation. Um, right now, Mexican gray wolves are about as closely related to each other as full siblings, and that's problematic. That's one of the things that you know we really count on the Mexican wolf species survival plan, the captive breeding program, to help carefully manage breeding and manage their genetics. And then we need to follow through with the great work that the Species Survival Plan is doing by then reintroducing some of those wolves from the captive population into the wild population. And that's something that hasn't been happening as often as we would like to see. Um, we've had a lot of success with cross-fostering, with placing young pups into wild dens. Um, and that's one way of introducing new genetics into our wild population. But we also, in parallel with that strategy, need to immediately boost gene diversity in the wild by releasing well-bonded family groups, um, wolf packs, wolf families with their pups, uh, because that's going to immediately not only increase the population size, but put breeding age wolves on the ground in the wild in appropriate places where they belong. Um, and that is something that hasn't been happening for several years and something we are continuing to advocate for. Um, so we definitely got to address that genetics issue. Um, and we also have to address the fact that there, while mortality was lower in 2022, human-caused mortality is still the number one threat to Mexican gray wolves. Um, we still have a high degree of illegal killing um, and other human-caused mortality. And that's an ongoing issue that is going to challenge uh, Mexican wolf recovery until we are able to do more to address that through robust legal protections. Um, and through fostering social tolerance um, in and around the areas where wolves are recovering. So when when you say, I mean, we've been using the term huge growth, and it, it makes it sound like maybe it's been abnormal growth, and abnormal growth at least in recent history in comparison to years before. And if so, can you credit that success to something. I think Emily kind of covered that it was a combination of higher pup survival um, and lower mortality overall. Um, so I wouldn't say abnormal. <laughs> um, I think it's, you know, an, a percentage of growth that's expected given that we were able to address, uh, you know, those two other factors, pup survival and mortality. Uh, but what we don't believe has happened yet is, you know, truly meaningfully addressing human-caused mortality uh, for the longer term, you know, beyond just a single year. Because um, one year of population growth is wonderful. But like Emily said, you know, we need a higher average population for at least eight years and beyond. We need that assurance that we aren't just going to have 
a population that is like a yo-yo going up and going down and going up and going down. Um, Because each time we have a year with higher mortality or lower pup survival, you know, that's going to lower our overall population, which also further decreases gene diversity in the wild. Um, And it's that gene diversity that really allows um, any species to adapt to a changing environment and be resilient and survive for the long term. Uh, So it's a critical factor that we don't believe is currently being adequately addressed by most of the policies that govern Mexican wolf recovery. Right. And is it that the the human mortality issue in the area is such that it it truly is the the leading factor inhibiting a successful wolf population. And if you could just address that to some degree, then the rest would be more simple. Yeah, it, it seems like it should be a simple thing, but it is a complex uh, and nuanced issue. Um, there are community members who depend on uh, livestock grazing for their livelihood. Um, there's also a lot of fear and misunderstanding around wolves. Um, you know, one of the most important things that we can do to advance wolf recovery is dispel myths, address some of those fears, um, and provide tools for coexistence. Um, those are, you know, some of the steps that we can take. So a lot of the nonprofits that we're working with through Lobos of the Southwest um, are doing work to address both sides of that, both, you know, education and outreach and also providing concrete support for coexistence projects on the ground. Um, both of those things are important. But we also need legal protections and we need law enforcement. And when a crime is committed, when a wolf is illegally killed, you know, we need to make sure that that is fully investigated and that the people who perpetrate crimes like that are brought to justice. Um, we need to incentivize protecting wolves and celebrating wolves returning to the landscapes where they were historically found and where they should have a chance to thrive today. Um, rather than trying to limit where they're recovering. What's the, I guess, percentage or what's the amount that, I mean, when we're talking about human cause mortality, we're, are we talking mostly poaching? Or are vehicles in, included in that? Yeah. Or vehicles, what's, what? yeah, what's the, what's the? I, I've seen enough stories, I think, on social media or even articles that have been written where there there have been, wolf pops or, or packs even of Mexican greys that have been released. And then within a week or so, it's like that pack has already been decimated or, or killed. Is that is poaching the main thing? Is illegal killing? Is that essentially the main uh, human cause mortality? Yes. Yeah, there is a breakdown and vehicle mortality is part of it as well. Um, you know, there are some major highways that run around and through the um, experimental population area or the core recovery area. Um, and as this happens to all wildlife, but as wildlife, we're crossing these human lines, <laughs> um, highways and roads. You know, there is that potential for vehicle mortality as well. Uh, but with Mexican gray wolves, we do have a high in- incidence of poaching, um, illegal killing, uh, poisoning and gunshot um, in both injuries and deaths for our wolves. And agencies are mm, agencies are good about addressing those things or. You know, I, I do feel like there are great people in the law enforcement departments at U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service who are trying to do good work to investigate. Uh, but there are some challenges with that. Um, we have a policy in place right now called the McKittrick policy, uh, which essentially allows someone to claim that they thought a wolf was a coyote. And Mexican gray wolves and coyotes are distinct. And if you know what to look for, it you know, you can definitely tell the difference between the two species. 
Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things that all you have to do is, you know, create a reasonable doubt that you didn't know what animal that was. Um, and it is not illegal to harm coyotes in the area where Mexican gray wolves are recovering. Um, so that's just one example of it, it's another policy that doesn't exactly support protecting Mexican gray wolves who are critically endangered and should have full protection under the law. And Emily, I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to clarify, too, so everybody knows that, I mean, Mexican gray wolves are still a fully endangered species. So they are protected under the Endangered Species Act. Um, there are no legal hunting seasons for them anywhere in the U.S. Um, you know, and that does make them distinct from other wolf populations in the U.S. But not to minimize the impact of illegal mortality as as a major threat to their conservation, another major threat to their conservation has actually been management removals over the years that have been very heavy handed um, for, you know, on behalf of um, primarily livestock um, conflict issues. So um, there used to be what was called the three strikes rule that was a policy in place for many years um, where any wolf that was implicated in depredating on livestock at least three times um, would pretty much automatically be removed, whether they were, you know, it was proven or not, whether they were a genetically valuable wolf or not, um, they could have been removed lethally or non-lethally. But if they were captured live, they were rarely ever reintroduced back into the wild at a later date. So I think, you know, we've, I don't have the exact number right off the top of my head, but I know Last time I checked, I think we were over 130 um, individual wolves in 25 years that had been killed um, illegally through, um, you know, human shooting. But there's well over 200 Mexican wolves that have been removed from the wild for issues either for, um, you know, like I mentioned, like livestock conflicts or um, crossing arbitrary boundaries on the reintroduction area. There, there are a good number of wolves that have also been removed from the wild for just crossing outside of arbitrary lines, like Interstate 40. Um, so that's still a big issue that really set the population back, um, especially like through like 2005, 2006, through like 2009. That was a period where the population started to go down in the wild. So it basically like flatlined around 50 wolves in the wild for a period of years. Um, and then it took conservation groups um, actively suing over those issues to try and stop so many management removals. And I think that was another factor that actually helped the population increase in 2022 was there were no management removals last year. So that was really a you know a major improvement by far. Um, another factor that we haven't touched on yet um, is that a lot of the wolves with pups, um, the packs that have pups or are receiving cross fostered pups in the wild, are getting supplemental feeding. So the agencies are actively providing 
you know, roadkill or carcasses or carnivore logs to those packs during the denning season. Um, and that's an issue that um, we've seen the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service actually put that into their population viability models to get to this uh, magic number they came up with of 320 wolves to be a viable population in the U.S. They put supplemental feeding in their models for like the next 75 years. Wow. Which we all know is like, no, that's never going to happen when wolves are delisted, right? Like management's going to stop at that at you know, at that point, and um, they're not going to be actively reintroducing wolves or they're not going to continue to do this like active feeding. So that's something that's really, uh, you know, problematic, we think it's um, controversial. It's um, it's not actually like well researched. Um, the impact that supplemental feeding is having on basically masking some of the genetic problems and and litter survival. Um, it's definitely probably in, in, you know, artificially inflating survival of wolves in the wild. Wow. So wait, so why are they, why are they supplementing food in an area that has ample prey base? Well, it is to help, uh, pup survival rates, um, pretty much, you know, to increase pup survival, um, that first year. And then there's two forms of feeding. Um, there is diversionary feeding, which is used specifically to try and reduce conflict from areas where, like, if a wolf pack is denning oh, I see. in an, an active pasture or allotment. So that's one way it's used um, as that tool. And But there's also just the supplemental feeding that's just trying to basically assist that pack and make sure that they're they're not you know, having to go out too far to hunt, um, to increase the survival of their pups. Okay. So they're trying to, they're trying, they're trying to encourage pup survival near active cattle grazing, but they also don't want too many wolves in an active cattle grazing area because they may eat cattle and then they'd have to remove them. Um, I mean, is there any research about this supplemental feeding? Because I guess just to me, it seems mildly conflicting that they would want to encourage pup survival uh, near active cattle operations, but then they're heavy-handed, like you said, or or quick to remove wolves near cattle operations. I mean, does this work, or do you foresee more issues in the future because of it, or or more conflict, I should say? just because predators are, are, are good at learning where easy food is. And it seems like it, it, it could result in more conflict that the easy food just happens to be in the vicinity of cattle operations. I, uh, yeah, honestly, I don't know the research um, to really back up these techniques at this point. Um, so I think it's something that is worth investigating a lot more and and trying to understand is it useful what you know what's the timing of it i you know i'm assuming it's primarily done specifically around the denning season i see so okay. you know it's a couple of months um and and the 
pack, obviously it's a time of year where they can't just Mm. up and move a pack away from, um, an active allotment, um, or there might be issues with trying to like, you know, get, get those cattle moved to a different area when the wolves have selected their den site. Um, you know, it's probably continues somewhat through the summer because that can be a harder time, uh, you know, kind of a leaner time for wolves to hunt and survive through the summer. But usually by the fall, um, you know, things are, are getting better for wolves. Um, so I, you know, I think it's, I would say it's probably a pretty limited period wow. of time, but it's still a lot of packs that are getting uh, supplemental mm-hmm. food. Yeah. It's an interesting way to, to do that. Um, this one could be for either of you, Aaron or Emily. I, I've seen a lot of these wolves that uh, Interstate 40 is, it seems like this imaginary boundary line where, you know, I, I've seen wolves that have crossed this line and then they've actually, you know, darted them or whatever and brought them back into the recovery zone. I, explain whoever or both of you, what what is the the deal with Interstate 40? Is that the the line where they cannot cross is there a, is there a certain reason why if they cross that line it's are are they in a danger zone for them and there's no protection just sort of tell everybody what that means because it, to me it would just seem where you you'd be keeping a wolf just sort of in this area and that they're go- they're going to migrate either way but I just don't know what what it exactly means and I've read a little bit on it but I figured one of you would probably have more information on that so whoever wants to take that yeah, I was going to ask that that same thing. Like, what, what is it, what is an example of an unacceptable yeah. boundary? I don't know whoever wants to go for that. <laughs> I can jump in because this is obviously a, an area my organization uh, thinks about a lot. Um, we work on the I forty boundary issue um, quite a bit, trying to change that area. But the Interstate forty is the northern boundary of what's called the experimental. Um, the non-essential experimental population area. Um, So that was designated in the 10J rule for Mexican wolves as a experimental non-essential population. They're still endangered under the Endangered Species Act, but that is like a status given um, to allow more management flexibility in their reintroduction. Um, And then I-40 was just the designated northern boundary Technically, if a wolf crosses it um, and goes north of I-40, they are considered a fully endangered wolf. So they still have um, protections north of I-40 in Arizona and New Mexico. But because all Mexican wolves are known to originate from south of I-40 in the experimental population area, um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the cooperating agencies have issued themselves a permit to remove those wolves. Um, And so that's how they get around it. But technically they are considered a fully endangered wolf north of that line on the map. Obviously wolves don't know the difference, Um, but, um, and it's all contiguous habitat to them um, that they're, we know they're choosing to move in those directions, um, in Arizona and New Mexico on their own and will continue to do so, um, as the population grows. Um, there are, you know, two ways the agency could change this. 
Um, one is they could extend the, the Mexican wolf 10J area, reintroduction area, further north. They could go to the, the state line of Arizona, New Mexico with Utah and Colorado. They could extend it even further north to Interstate 40 in Utah and Colorado. You know, that is what um, would allow Mexican wolves to be actively reintroduced in more places. Um, so that would be personally the option I think the science best supports is um, moving the line further north that would allow more active reintroductions um, in areas further north of Interstate 40. Another option is that they could just basically stop issuing themselves this 10A1A permit to remove wolves, or they could just stop removing wolves <laughs> north of I-40, and they would be fully endangered um, wolves as they are when they cross that line, and they'd be allowed to reestablish. The only issue with that, I mean, it's good from the protection point of view um, to have that option. The only downside is that, again, we go back to the genetic issues that any wolves that disperse directly from the current core reintroduction area in eastern Arizona and western New Mexico, they're then just uh, dispersing and carrying those same um, inbred genetics out to new population areas. So it's good and it's bad because, you know, ultimately we want them to repopulate these areas north of I-40, but we also need there to be suitable mates for them to find in these areas. So, and that's going to be hard for them to do. It's going to take a lot of time um, and they're going to have to have mates from the same core reintroduction area find each other north of I-40. Um, whereas the agency could just speed this all up and improve the genetics all in one swoop if they just started reintroducing more Mexican wolves from captivity <laughs> in the Grand Canyon region and the Southern Rockies. So it's just the the way the territories are set up, or the distance between territories that is the the obstacle to genetic diversity. That's what it seems like, yeah. Well, maybe Aaron wants to jump in on yeah. this, but there, I mean, there are a number of basically excuses that are thrown out for why the agencies um, chose the I forty boundary. One of them is that they want this big buffer zone of you know, several hundred miles between Northern Rockies wolves in the North and Mexican wolves. Um, and because you know, there's some argument that Northern gray wolves, could, you know, they're larger wolves, um, they could potentially start interbreeding with Mexican wolves and like swamp out the, the genetics. But most actual geneticists um, who have worked on Mexican wolves, you know, have actually said that genetic rescue is actually much more important a concern than genetic swamping by northern gray wolves. So they do actually need to start interbreeding again. They they do need to have connected populations, and it would actually be much better for northern gray wolves to have that intergradation zone with Mexican wolves in Utah and Colorado a little further north so that we would still have like some core kind of more protected areas of Mexican wolf um, genetics that are kind of 
you know, protected in the interior of their range. And then the intergradation would happen a little bit further on the northern periphery of their range. Um, and that would actually be better overall. So that's that's just one of the kind of excuses slash debates. Yeah, what do you think? Tell us the others, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if I can just add a little more to that thought, though, of historically we would have had a continuous gradation of gray wolves from Alaska through Canada into the Northern Rockies, into the Southern Rockies, through the Southwest, down into Mexico, through the Sierra, uh, Sierra Madre Occidental. Um, you know, and we have this opportunity now, today, to rewild parts of the American West and Mexico. And part of the reason why we advocate for abolishing these arbitrary boundaries like Interstate 40 is that that boundary is an obstacle to that rewilding effort. It is an obstacle to restoring the wild places that still exist in a corridor in the Western US and Mexico, and where we have an opportunity to restore native carnivores and other native species like the wolf. Um, so I, you know, I definitely just want to re-emphasize and echo what Emily was saying was that it it would be a positive thing to see that that zone of gradation restored. Um, and the farther north that happens, the better that is for preserving what is unique about Mexican gray wolf genetics. So we would retain our, our core population of Mexican wolves in the south, and we would have a zone of intermingling or interbreeding, um, you know, ideally somewhere in, you know, the, nor the um, northern Arizona, uh, southern Rockies area, rather than closer to the existing um, current experimental population area. Yeah, I mean, you also asked a really interesting question about what is an acceptable boundary, too. Like, thinking about it that way, what would be an acceptable boundary is a boundary based on the biology, ecology, and behavior of the animal species in question. Uh, and for wolves, they're a, a wide-ranging species. They naturally disperse from the packs that they're born in. They roam hundreds of miles to establish a new territory, to find a mate, to start a family of their own. So the boundaries that we currently have, you know, artificial boundaries like Interstate 40 that are part of the 10J rule, and then physical boundaries like the border wall to the south, these are obstacles, both political and physical, that disrupt the natural behavior and ecology of the species in question. So an acceptable boundary is a boundary that's based in science that doesn't disrupt the natural behavior and the ecological role that an animal or a plant species um, has to play. Uh, so I just wanted to add that in as well, because I think that's a really interesting way to think about that of, you know, what are the policies that we have based in science um, or are they based on something else? And is there a way that we can reform these policies so that they're doing everything possible to support the long-term conservation of endangered species like Mexican wolves. Yeah, I can definitely see how a highway is a legitimate deterrent in general to, I mean, particularly to, to predators traveling, but particularly I-40. I mean, this is, of course, anecdotal, but still seems to be true to me, at least. I drive through, Flag, through Flagstaff every few months on, on, my way to, on my way further west, and I feel as though and I could just be making this up, but I feel as though I see more dead deer and elk on I-40 in Arizona 
than just about anywhere I can think of. Is it is it just situated in an odd place or have, have there been studies about how to assist animals in crossing that area? I mean, it, it definitely seems like a difficult highway for, for animals to cross. Yeah, I could just quickly respond. I do know there have been um, wildlife corridor studies done around northern Arizona uh, that have identified uh, kind of priority corridors for crossing structures. Um, I know at least two areas west of Flagstaff um, have been identified for crossing structures, but I don't know that they've become a priority for um, the Department of Transportation or if they're, you know, what the status is right now that they're, if they're allocating funding for those projects. Um, And, but, you know, there's definitely um, deer and elk are moving off the San Francisco peaks. Um, which is really high elevation um, for the winter, and they are often moving down closer or even off the Mogollon Rim. So we're kind of situated right on, along this uplift in geography that um, the wildlife will move, um, you know, in, from higher to lower elevation in the winter months. Um, but that said, we did have a wolf, a Mexican gray wolf, um, in 2001. Um, that was living on the west side of Flagstaff in the National Forest um, for over six months. And he crossed um, I-40 successfully at least 10 times. Um, It was pretty amazing. So um, I'm quite sure that he was using the culverts um, to cross under the highway. Um, And so he figured that out. And, And it's not unheard of. We do know that like Mexican wolves have use culverts even as like a den before in the wild um in the and um they know how to find them they're good at that and so he was doing that successfully he was captured the first time he was north by 40 for several months um arizona game and fish department um darted and translocated him back into uh the core recovery area in eastern arizona um, and he pretty much right away dispersed again. So he made this journey over 250 miles from eastern Arizona to um, north and west of Flagstaff in the Coconino and Kaibab National Forest twice in that year, which was pretty amazing. Like he clearly knew he wanted to be up here and and he successfully figured out ways to cross the highways. Um, so that was pretty impressive. And and all I could say is he was unfortunately shot and killed illegally in beginning of 2022. Um, but, you know, I really hope that he left his mark <laughs> in a lot of areas up here so that other wolves, when they're making that same journey, will will follow his scent and know where those crossings are. I, I want to, that's a that's an incredible story. For Aaron, you brought up something that, I I've heard being discussed on multiple platforms and it's, it's about rewilding and there are, there are, I think people in groups that have taken to this and saying that advocacy groups or environmental groups and people who want to rewild certain parts of the country and that it's, and again, I'm using sort of their terms of like, it's very, you know, woo woo and Oh, we should re- rewild these places because, and I'm sure Emily, you might've heard this too. 
what are the ways that either Lobos or yourself or anyone that you might know combat those in a way that's educational and informative? Because I think there are people that think that rewilding means putting animals back everywhere, meaning put them in the center of Los Angeles, New York City, and this, that, and the other. Whereas with uh, keeping it to the Mexican gray wolf is that this corridor really is wild. There is no, you know, in the, in the corridor that you're speaking, when we're talking about from Alaska to the Canada, all the way down to, to Mexico and things of that sort. What are the myths that you come up with? And Emily, if you want to jump into after Aaron's done, that you hear most often and, and what's a way that you are, can informatively dispel them in a way that people understand, hey, this is, this is something that's more natural than just saying we want to throw wolves everywhere, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, I think the term rewilding can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I'm going to speak from a very personal place <laughs> uh, for a moment. Um, and for me, rewilding is about looking at the places that are wild, that are still wild and asking, is this wild place, does it have all of the plants and animals that it historically had? And can those plants and animals return here if they're not currently found here? Um, can we restore some of the function of ecosystems? Can we restore some of the biodiversity that may have been lost over time, especially biodiversity loss caused by human activities? Uh, I, I believe firmly in you know, having that responsibility of uh, righting some of the wrongs of the past and you know, looking at places where we can make a positive difference for ecosystems, for plants and animals, and for people who depend on those ecosystems. Uh, by restoring some of the function uh, and restoring some of the species uh, that can still live there. So it doesn't mean that I'm going to have wolves in the alley behind my apartment in the city. <laughs> it does mean that in wild places, especially on public lands, our national forests, our national parks, areas that are already protected and preserved as reservoirs for plant and animal species, you know, these are the places that I think, you know, most of us are thinking about when we talk about rewild. Restoration efforts in particular, you need to know that there's a suitable environment for them to return to um, or a suitable environment for them to increase their populations or increase their ranges. You need water, you need prey, you need suitable habitat. Um, lots of factors go into deciding, you know, where are the areas uh, where we can protect existing biodiversity and where are the areas where we can restore biodiversity that may have been diminished or lost. Um, and I think in the southwestern U.S., we have these unique and precious and delicate landscapes um, from the deserts up through the mountains and everything in between. And it's such an opportunity to put back some of the species that we have had historically, some of these native species that are so important to the natural heritage of the Southwest. And Mexican wolves are one of those species. Um, and we've seen that you know, the fact that they reached that milestone of 241 wolves in Arizona and New Mexico this year, it's a testament to the resilience of these animals. It's a testament to the fact that they can live successfully here but we aren't quite past the finish line with them yet. We need to do a little bit more to help them um, to make sure that they're allowed to roam freely and thrive in the additional wild places 
where they do belong, but they're not found yet. And I think the Grand Canyon ecoregion, the Southern Rockies, um, those are two key areas that are critical for Mexican wolf conservation, have been identified by scientists as being needed for recovery. Um, so we can't say we're done quite yet, can't quite check that off the to-do list. Emily, what are some of the, I mean, we haven't really covered the Grand Canyon, so I actually, I've got some basic questions, but what are some of the, I guess, adjacent ecological issues that um, the Grand Canyon area faces, the current issues that relate to biodiversity or ecological balance, and, and maybe how does the recovery of a predator to this specific area relate to them? And I, I don't want to say that you know, any one species is a fix-all to these issues. Sometimes it's easy to make it sound that way, but how does a healthy wolf population relate to those issues or, or how might it assist? Yeah, there, um, well, I don't know if you've visited the South Rim of the Grand Canyon <laughs> and it's not uncommon to see a lot of elk um, just hanging out at the South Rim, um, just right in the main village area. Um, you know, so hopefully wolves would kind of help, obviously, like not directly in the village, but but would help kind of continue to move herds um, from just hanging out in one particular area and just have that um, kind of reintroduce that ecology of fear concept where there's this conspicuous wolf on the landscape that um, is is helping the all, you know, the all trophic levels of the ecosystem um, around Grand Canyon. Of course, we know, you know, like Grand Canyon National Park itself is fairly narrow um, on the rims, but they are surrounded by national forests, um, both to the north and the south. And actually just this week, um, the Grand Canyon Intertribal um, Working Group of 11 tribes affiliated with Grand Canyon National Park um, is now asking the Biden administration to um, designate monument status to additional areas, both on the North and the South Rim outside of Grand Canyon. Um, so hopefully that would provide an added layer. Um, you know, just like, I don't know if, I'm sure you've had on the podcast other um, wolf scientists that have worked on looking at the issues around mortality of carnivores in national parks. And there was just like an excellent study done, came out last year on like the five park um, research, looking at wolf mortality. You know, so that's definitely still a concern that, that we do have this kind of keystone uh, protected landscape of a national park here in the Southwest that could provide some core refuge habitat for wolves that could be really important, but it's not enough, you know, obviously like, like wolves will always be crossing the boundaries of, um, so hopefully, you know, the monument status um, can increase some protections for wolves over time. But, you know, ultimately, I, you know, I think there's always going to be issues between state management of predators uh, everywhere in the U.S. So, you know, we're always going to have to deal with that. We're always going to have to be advocating for wolves, no matter what their protected status is, when states take over management of large carnivores. Um, so it probably really will take some kind of 
federal legislation to protect our big carnivores across the country um, at some point in time. I think, you know, I think that's that's a long term goal to see. When we're t- when and I guess talking about the expanded habitat and and talking about again, I think the the corridor, which is it seems like the key piece for this for for Mexican gray wolves and wolves in general. For both of you, obviously, when we're talking about uh, the Colorado reintroduction that's happening, and and obviously it's not your your area of expertise, but what is what does it mean for both of you in terms of, I would say, just positive reinforcement of wolves back in the landscape? Again, really putting that final piece of the corridor together, and meaning that. Mexican grays could possibly get up to that point in Colorado and and cross pollinate or at least meet uh, those wolves that are that are going to be reintroduced ultimately. How does that factor into again the education, the information, the the biology of it? How does it uh, make you both feel that there's something that could you know be finally putting that final puzzle piece together for that for that corridor for wolves? I think for me, it's an exciting opportunity, and I'm so inspired by the individuals and groups who are doing that on-the-ground work in Colorado, organizing around Prop 114, getting that passed into law so that gray wolves can be restored in Colorado. Um, you know, Definitely one of those <laughs> historical moments where it was amazing to see it happening and in a small way support in my own little corner of the world. Um, and yeah, just that opportunity to, to reestablish connectivity and to have an area where gray wolves and Mexican gray wolves can intermingle is exciting and ultimately is going to benefit both gray wolves and Mexican gray wolves. Um, you know, for Mexican gray wolves, you know, kind of approaching through my lens of working with Lobos, um, you know, we would love to see Mexican gray wolves come back home not just in the core area where they are now, but also in Grand Canyon ecoregion and the Southern Rockies. Um, we'd love to see Mexican gray wolves have a place in Southern Colorado while Northern gray wolves have a place um, in Northwestern Colorado. You know, we'd love to see that connectivity happening in the state of Colorado. Uh, we do acknowledge there are some policy obstacles currently to that happening. Emily mentioned the 10J rule. Um, so our existing Mexican wolf 10J rule would prevent Mexican gray wolves from being reintroduced into Colorado. So we would either need our existing 10J rule for Mexican wolves to change, to expand that northern boundary farther north um, into Colorado, perhaps at Interstate 70, um, or we would need a new 10J rule that would allow for the reintroduction of Mexican gray wolves into southern Colorado. Um, the federal government is working on a 10J rule for uh, Mex- for wolves in Colorado right now. Uh, and April 18th is actually the comment deadline for that proposed rule. So we're in it. It's a timely uh, moment here for wolves uh, throughout both Colorado and the Southwest. Um, so we've been trying to get people involved in that effort to, you know, send in public comments, uh, make sure you're voicing uh, both what you would like to see for gray wolves in Colorado um, but also advocating for a place for lobos in southern Colorado as well. And what about you, Emily? Anything that you uh, you want to tag on there with with Aaron about how you know just the connectivity or or anything else you you want to tag on there? Yeah, I think. I mean, I like Aaron. I'm excited. I'm hopeful for Colorado. I know it's it's still contentious. Um, where everywhere 
that wolves are, <laughs> you know, people are usually the biggest hurdle <laughs> uh, for wolves. You know, the wolves themselves are very resilient and adaptable and amazing. And they'll do fine on their own if we can figure out how to accept them and let them do their thing. Um, so I'm trying to be optimistic that things will be okay um, in Colorado once the reintroduction gets underway um, and people will accept them there. And then then there's the possibility, whether it's Mexican wolves in Southern Colorado or Northern gray wolves um, in Northern Colorado, I think either species could make it to the North Rim of the Grand Canyon. That's That's not that great a distance from the Southern Rockies to the North Rim. So I'm hopeful that we'll start to see wolves disperse from that direction as well. Um, I know that Utah is a very hostile state for predators. Um, they do have bounties in place still for coyotes. In the state of Utah, uh, they just opened up mountain lion hunting basically year round and unlimited. So, you know, Utah is a very dangerous place for predators. Um, there's no doubt on the landscape, but but we have seen wolves dispersed through the state of Utah before. Um, so I, I wish them the best and I wish them uh, to disperse in a sneaky and safe way. And we'll keep doing our, our part to continue to get public education out there and make sure people know that they're protected and it's illegal to kill them. Is there any concern that the success of gray wolves making their way to the the sort of southwestern tip of Colorado and they're stretching through Arizona and they're breeding with these isolated populations of Mexican gray wolves that this will cause essentially the petering out of the Mexican gray wolf genetics that you're working so hard to preserve? Is, is that a fear or would that be uh, a welcome change? You're sort of describing the process of evolution, right? Of, of changes in the genetics of populations. And, you know, with Mexican gray wolves, I, I guess you could say it's a fear in the sense that right now Mexican gray wolves are still considered endangered. They still need legal protections. In order to have those legal protections, they need a valid taxonomic status. So they do need those unique genetics that's kind of tied into why and how they're legally protected right now. Uh, but we could also look at this in terms of the ecological niche filled by Mexican gray wolves and by Northern gray wolves. And essentially they, they play the same role in an ecosystem. And so having wolves, regardless of the subspecies on the landscape is a positive thing for ecosystems. It's a positive thing for biodiversity. Uh, it's a positive thing for the many species of plants and animals that have complex relationships with wolves. So it's not necessarily inherently a bad thing if we are having intermingling of Northern gray wolves and Mexican gray wolves and eventual change in the population level genetics where maybe the species that we have on the landscape 100 years from now or 200 years from now is different than what we have today. You know, that's not inherently a bad thing. Um, but for right now in the immediate 2023, there is a desire to preserve and protect the unique genetics of Mexican gray wolves. And that's because they aren't recovered yet. We haven't reached that goal of having enough Mexican gray wolves on the lands 
landscape to ensure their long-term survival and their ability to thrive for future generations. And until we reach that point, we still have some need for uh, protection for their genetics and a bit of a buffer zone um, where they don't get completely swamped by other subspecies of gray wolves. But I think Emily pointed out, you know, the concept of genetic swamping and the concept of genetic rescue are related to each other. And in the sense that having some uh, introduction of northern gray wolf genes into Mexican gray wolves can serve the goal of genetic rescue, I think that's an important point to remember too, that it can ultimately lead to a population of wolves in the Western US that's overall healthier and more genetically diverse than what we currently have with isolated separate populations of gray wolves. Um, I guess I'll, uh, I'll well, I, what I want for, for both of you is just give everyone in a, a place where they can go see. I know uh, both organizations have Instagram. You guys both have awesome websites. Just give everybody an idea of where they can go to check out all of the the policy that you're doing, the the work that you're doing, where they can check out all the amazing things that were happening for the 25th anniversary of Mexican Greg Wolves and give them where they can go to check all this amazing stuff out. Uh, well, the Grand Canyon Wolf Recovery Project, we have a website that's gcwolfrecovery.org. Um, so people can check us out there. And then we also have social media, of course, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Um, we have, we do have a TikTok page. Uh, that's, you know, <laughs> who knows how long that will last, um, or how active that is depending on what, um, creative college interns I get that know how to use TikTok, um, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and we also have some videos on YouTube. Um, but yeah, that's where you can find us online. And you can learn more about Logos of the Southwest and all of our conservation partners at MexicanWolves.org. Uh, so our main repository for news, information, and information about our partner organizations. Uh, we are on social media as well, at Mexican Gray Wolves on Facebook, at Mexican Wolves on Twitter, and at Logos of the Southwest on Instagram. And we also have some videos up on YouTube as well if you search for nice. those. Uh, my last question for both of you, Emily and Aaron, and we'll start with, let's go with Emily first is, uh, and the same question for you, Aaron is when you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? Well, for the 25th anniversary of Mexican wolves in the wild, I just hosted, um, three events with a Navajo storyteller named Sunny Dooley. Um, she's amazing. And so this is not really my story to tell, but it's been on my mind a lot because we did uh, three events together for 450 people um, that week of the anniversary, talking to a lot of school kids. And she shared a traditional Navajo story um, where the wolf is a leader from the East. And what really struck me as um, so beautiful when she tells this story. It's kind of all the animals are are trying to are kind of fighting. They're all trying to learn how to live together. And the wolf is this leader that comes from the east, and he brings. Well, she actually she describes um, the wolf as a she um, is uh, brings all the gifts of spring and all the gifts of the the sunrise and dawn. 
and like all the in the spring, like all the pollen and the seeds and the rain. And it's just so beautiful. That's really um, stayed with me since hearing her stories again, that we often think of spring as this time of, of rebirth and renewal and growth. And for that to be a gift that the wolf brings um, is really beautiful to me. Um, and, and the wolf also brings common sense. Um, and so that's also something that's just really beautiful. And she sings a, a song uh, that's the wolf song that's about listening. And so the lyrics um, say like, listen to the mountain, listen to the bottom of the mountain, listen to the middle of the mountain, listen to the top of the mountain. And every good leader has to be a good listener. Um, and so those are just such beautiful images she describes. Um, and of course, there's a lot more detail that, I, you know, I won't go into, um, but I just, you know, I hope that that stays with you too. And you kind of get that image of how beautiful. And now that we're in spring, we can enjoy the gifts of the wolf this spring. When I think about wolves, I think about family and, you know, part of this is just knowing the biology of wolves and their natural behavior, but part of it is just my personal experience working with them in the species survival plan and getting to see them raise their pups and the whole pack cooperating together to do that. Every pack member has a role from the aunts and uncles and, you know, older siblings babysitting and playing with the pups and teaching them all about wolf etiquette um, to the parents and the way they cooperate with each other to raise the pups. It's just such a, a beautiful and inspiring thing to see um, and getting to see even cross-fostering happening uh, that, wolves are such amazing parents that, you know, they're very happy to adopt. <laughs> they're, you know, more than happy to raise pups that aren't biologically related to them. Um, and I think personally, they're smart enough to know, you know, they probably have some scent cues and other cues to know that these may not be their puppies, but they still love puppies and they're still very happy to raise them. And that. I think is one of the most important things that I keep circling back to when people talk, um, you know, perhaps some of our, our cultural representations of wolves where wolves are scary or they're, you know, bloodthirsty killers or they're dangerous. And I just keep thinking back to all of these years of experience I have seeing wolves in peaceful families, in loving families, in caring relationships with each other where they care for each other, they support each other, they mourn each other if a wolf in a pack passes away. You know, and that, that isn't a bloodthirsty killer to me. You know, that is a, a peaceful and beautiful creature that deserves just as much respect and right to thrive as anyone else. I love both of those, those things from you and they'll, they'll stick with us uh, for a while. Thank you, uh, Emily Wren, Aaron Hunt, for really just an awesome uh, informational session about Mexico, Mexican gray wolves and you, uh, all of their Instagrams and their websites will be in the description so you guys can follow along with them. Uh, Emily and Aaron, thank you both so much for, for taking the time for almost doing 90 minutes with us, which is great. So it's uh, hopefully, you know, those Mexican gray wolves can keep populating and we'll, uh, we'll help push the policy as best we can. So thank you both. And, uh, you know, house to you all out there and we'll be with you next time. Bye everybody. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the donate tab, 
and find out more information. <laughs>